Well, the only thing worse than being, is danger, being in danger is being in danger and not knowing it. The last Sunday, my wife and I do what we do most Sunday nights, which is we went to bed early. Sunday's the day, we work hard, we play hard, and generally crash pretty early in the evening. For me, normally, I'm in bed at 9 or before on a Sunday evening. So we went to bed, and I was sleeping really well. I assume both of us were sleeping really well, although my wife is six months pregnant, so I don't think that that category exists for her anymore, at least at this point. And I'm sleeping when suddenly my wife shakes me awake and says, someone is ringing our doorbell. And as she tells me that, they ring it again. So I start, my heart's beating out of my chest. I look at my phone to see what time it is. It's 12.30 a.m. And I start thinking, we don't have a people. Our porch light is out. There's no way for me to see the other side of that door. Who is ringing that doorbell? And as I come to this realization, they ring it again. So I get up from my bed, half awake, my heart's pounding out of my chest, and I go to our door, and I just yell out, Who's there? No answer. Then they ring the doorbell again. So I call out again, who is it? Who's there? No answer. And I'm sitting there, maybe they left. What's going on? What's happening? When I'm about to walk away from the front door, I hear them trying to open our screen door. Thankfully, it's locked, so they can't get in. But then they start pounding on the door. So I just one last time called out, who is it? Who's there? And I feel like an idiot. I'm yelling at my front door. And finally they answered. It's your neighbor. Your garage door is open. <laughs> well, I mean, here, I, I think this guy on the other side of, of my door is the danger, right? That he's, he's cr- coming in to get me, kill, my, kill me, my wife, whatever. And the reality was, he was, he was my safety. That, that my garage door was wide open. Anyone could have walked in at any moment and entered our kitchen The only thing worse than than being in trouble is being in trouble and not knowing it. Because you're more vulnerable. You're in worse shape. That you don't see the trouble coming, so you can't do anything to stop it. The only thing worse than being in trouble is being in trouble and not knowing it. My guess is most of us in here walked in. We live our lives. We're not in trouble most days. Most days I feel like I'm in most control of my, my life. So I'm not in trouble. I think that's how most of us live. In fact, I would even go a step further and say that we live in a culture that has trouble with trouble. If you haven't seen the movie Inside Out, you should. It's, it's a great movie. And in particular, it's a critique of the way our culture deals with sadness, deals with trouble. The movie chronicles a young girl's move from her hometown or homeschool to a new town and a new school. And kids, is there anything more terrifying or sad uh, than having to leave your school to go to a new one, to go to a new town where you don't know anyone? And so sadness inevitably soothes, and that story unpacks our tendency as a culture to say, don't be sad, it's okay, just be happy. Or, or think of Facebook. The teenagers, those of you middle school, high school, you see right through Facebook, right? Those of us who maybe in our early 30s, we kind of started with Facebook. Now teenagers are using it less and less. A study was done recently that said 77% of teenagers think that people are fake and inauthentic on Facebook. And what's interesting is that same study showed that the more educated you are, the more pressure you feel to make your life look good on social media. And there's an irony, attention here. 
Because we live in a culture that stresses authenticity. It says, be who you are. Don't let anyone define you. Don't let anyone tell you what to say or what to think or what to do. Be who you are, except if you're sad or if your life's falling apart, and then we don't want to hear about it. Keep that to yourself. There's these conflicting messages. And our trouble with trouble means we're going to have trouble with the Psalms. They don't have time for our pretensions, our suppressions of our fears, or our um, potential failures. Maybe some of you were uncomfortable even with Psalm 3 when we got to verse 7. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. It sounds mean. That if you come to the Psalms with our cultural lens, what's going to happen is is you're going to to hear some of the things the psalmists say. And you're going to say, don't be so angry. But the psalmists reply back, but I'm angry. Or you read the Psalms and you, you say, don't be so afraid. And the psalmist cries back, but I'm afraid. Or you read the Psalms and you'll hear, don't don't be so sad. And the psalmist reply back, but I'm sad. That they don't have time for our pretensions. And it's good that we live in a culture that calls us to authenticity, to not being fake, to being real. And yet the Psalms reveal you and I aren't doing it. The psalmists are far more emotionally vulnerable than we are. And it's why if you read through the Psalter, you're going to get uncomfortable in moments. And it's why Psalm 3, which is the first prayer in the Psalter, starts with this vulnerability and trouble, fears. Now remember last week, Psalm 1 and 2, they aren't prayers. They're pre-prayers, which get you on the way to prayer. At Psalm 1, it unpacked the idea that that if you're going to be a praying person, you have to meditate on God's word. God has spoken, you have to meditate on it. And Psalm 2, then, is, is God, his response to a world that it's hard to pray in. Right, where people are opposed against God and you look around and you see this world and you say, well, good is prayer in the face of all of that. And you see God's reaction to this world rebelling against him as he laughs at it. Psalm 1, God speaks. Psalm 2, God laughs. Psalm 3, trouble. Danger. Fears. And in Psalm 1 and 2, if you have to pass through those two psalms to get onto the way of prayer... Then Psalm 3 is, is the first prayer, what shows you your condition. If you're going to pray, you have to have this condition. You won't pray without it. And so as we unpack Psalm 3, let it unpack you. Let it lay you bare and offer you a new way to, to pray, to, to be in the life of prayer. In Psalm 3, let, let it unpack three things for us. One, what, what stops us from praying? Two, what we need to pray. And three, what prayer offers us. What stops us, what we need, what prayer offers. First, what, what stops us from praying? In Psalm 3, it starts with a title, right? First words. And it's easy to skip over this, but we, we shouldn't. It, it, this title is this. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. There are many Psalms without titles. There are many Psalms with titles. And what the titles really function to do is to remind us that there was a moment in someone's life that made them stop and write a prayer out to God, which now you and I get to listen in on. And so this title is The Life of David, who was a king of Israel, who had this moment in his life when he had to flee from his son Absalom. David, he was king of Israel, and, and as king of Israel, he had, he had many children, which is another story for another time and another sermon. But one of his sons, Absalom, hated him and entered into this long plot 
to undermine David and try to take David's throne from him. So actually four years, Absalom undermines his dad. He, 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 he gossips about him behind his back. He tells the people of Israel, I'll be a better king than that. He slowly gathers support, gets key leaders behind him. So finally there's a moment when Absalom says, I and not David is king of Israel. And he had the military power and influence to back it up. Which meant David in Jerusalem had to flee for his life. He's lost his job, his kingship. He's lost his family. His son wants to kill him. And he has to flee for his life. That's the context out of which David sits down to write Psalm 3. And in particular, there's a verse in 2 Samuel 15, 30 that depicts David as he's leaving Jerusalem. He adopts a position of mourning. And this is what 2 Samuel 15, 30 says for us. As he's leaving Jerusalem, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. David's in trouble. But as you read Psalm 3, as you read the story of 2 Samuel 15 and 16, David makes no attempt to suppress or to hide or to cover his fears, his trouble, his sadness. He lets it out. So Psalm 3 starts, O Lord, how many are my foes? His own son. How many are rising against me? Many are saying in my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. No pretense, no mask. He's in trouble. He's in trouble because his, his physical life is threatened, right? I mean, you can't say, hey, I'm now the king without killing the king. So Absalom is seeking David's life. But more than that, it's, it's not just his physical life is threatened. His very sense of self is threatened. That as, as David was leaving Jerusalem, this guy comes out. This no-name no, no guy, not important guy, just comes out and starts throwing stones at David the king. And yells at David, David, your son has abandoned you and God has abandoned you. It's where Psalm 3, 2 comes from. There are many, who say, many saying there's no salvation for him and God. It's not just David's lost his family, his kingship. His life, it's now, it looks like he's lost his God. He has nothing. And it's from that, that place, David prays. That's why he's praying. That unless you think you're in trouble, you won't pray. Unless you think you're helpless, you won't pray. Psalm 3 is... As the first prayer in the Bible, first prayer in the Psalter says, helplessness is the condition for prayer. That you won't seek help if you don't need help. And maybe you hear that and think, but, but Tim, my life's not as bad as David's. I mean, David, his own son's trying to kill him. He's lost his kingship. He's got armies chasing him. That's a little bit more trouble than I will ever encounter. And obviously that's, that's true. That it, it takes a lot more for us to have our sense of self, or a lot less for us to have our sense of self shaken. But the reality is there's two things that threatens David, right? The two things that drive his fears that you and I encounter all the time. One is physical life is threatened, right? And whether it's you or someone else, at some point you'll get a diagnosis or you'll have a disease or something will enter your life which will threaten your very life, your existence. And it's not just that, it's this sense of self is shaken. And, and the reality is you and I, we can, we can cover, we can protect ourselves against our sense of selves being shaken. We have a lot more money than even David as a king had. We have a lot more things that can distract us. Entertainment, dull entertainment. That when trouble hits us, we can cover it with, with food, with money, with sex, with dull entertainment. David can't. 
Finally, his trouble centers him in, and David has nothing to grasp onto. His life is in danger. His self is in trouble. And my guess is, if I asked most of you when you're walking in, you're smiling, you're walking in the door, I said, and I asked you coming in here this morning, are you in trouble? Aside from being a little weirded out by me asking that question, you say, no, I'm fine. Life is good. I'm doing well. And we would all be wrong. That we're in trouble whether we see it or not. And our life has cues that would hint to us, hey, maybe you're not as secure as you think you are. I mean, why does our culture put so much pressure on us to suppress our feelings? I mean, try weeping in public. See, see what happens. People are just going to give you weird looks and walk right past you. Or even just, I can't go much of a week or two weeks without someone tearing up in front of me and apologizing for it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm crying. Why? Or why do we present only our best selves on, on social media? Why do we not want to let other people see our trouble, our fears, our anxieties? We're always wearing masks. We're always wearing a facade. And Psalm 3, it's a doorbell in the middle of your night. Saying, hey, your garage door is open. And by the way, you can't shut it. You are in trouble. And this is actually the best news. If you receive this, this is actually really good news. It's freeing because now you're ready to pray. You're not trusting in things to give you security and protection. You know you can't. You don't have those things, which means you're ready to pray. And I love this quote by a guy named Isaac Singer. He's a Jewish author. He said this, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. That prayer starts with trouble, a cry for help, which is good news for you and I. It means it's, prayer is more the, the cry of, a, of an infant than polished theological discourse. You don't have to come with the right words in prayer, that you would never say to an infant who is crying, hey, don't cry for that, that's not rational. Just this week, my, my youngest son, he, he freaked out because I didn't let him eat the toothpaste cap. And I didn't say to him, hey, listen, you shouldn't cry for that. That's not the right thing to cry. He's just crying, he's sad, he's, he's, he's helpless. And that's where prayer starts, is the irrational cry for help. That's where must, prayer must start. No pretension, no fakeness, no mask. It's the only way you'll pray. It's if you think you're in trouble. So let me ask you this morning, are you in trouble? The last week I I impressed into why, as a pastor in many ways, being a pastor hurt my prayer life. Made me aware of all the things I don't control. All the things that, that just wear me down, that this world wears me out about. And yet that same thing drove me into prayer because being a pastor is a constant reminder of how I have no control of anything, anywhere, at any time, any place. About five years ago, I was driving home um, with an event from the student ministry, the, the church that, that I worked at, and it was a blast. It was my favorite week of, of the year. 30 high school students, they'd worship, they'd, they'd laugh. It was just a great time. And so I was driving home, I was in a van with about six other high school guys, and we were talking about the sorts of things you would imagine six other high school guys in a, a youth pastor, whatever I was, um, uh, was talking about. It was gross. It was grotesque. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you what it is here because it's offensive. Um, but we were laughing. We were having a good time. And driving home, my phone rings. And the phone, on the phone, or the person calling me, his name was Dan. And Dan would always go with us on these trips. He loved these trips. They were his favorite week of the year, but he couldn't go this year. So I assumed he was calling to see how to go. How was it? And I was excited to answer him and let him in on the grotesqueness of the conversation we were laughing about in that moment. 
So I pulled out my phone, saw Dan was calling me, and I answered it. And before I could say anything, all I heard was Dan weeping at the other end of the line. And he couldn't get out many words, but he got out five, and he said, Tim, my wife is dead. It was a motorcycle accident. And like that, from, from high school boy conversation to death, was just this powerful reminder. I don't have any control over my life. I'm exposed. I am in trouble. And if I only pray when I'm in trouble, that's good news because I'm in trouble all the time. And so are you. Do you feel that need, that helplessness? Have you been driven in your life to prayer? Because you won't pray if you don't think you're helpless. It stops you from praying. Trace is another question. Well, what do we need to pray? Maybe you hear that story of Dan and, and think, well, so what do you want me to do? Just think about how my life can fall apart at any moment for the rest of my life? That sounds really terrible and not a great way to live. And you'd be right. That's not what I'm suggesting. There's two ways that we, you and I can live. It's, it's, you can live with irrational fears all the time, right? That you look around you, see all that can hurt you, and just wait for it at any moment. So you're going to get the phone call or the thing's going to fall on you. or it's, you, know, you can live with irrational fears or you can live with irrational calm. That that moment's never going to happen. That phone call's never going to come for you. That you're never going to face that sort of life or death trouble. You can either live in irrational fear or irrational calm. And I tend to live towards irrational calm. That's my bent. Just things don't get to me. But neither way is a life that can, can live with your eyes full open in the world in which you live. And that's one of the beauties of Psalm 3 is David, he's not consumed by his fears, but he's not blind to them. He has a calm, but it's not irrational. And you see this come out in Psalm 3 with, one, David's, David's very aware of his fears. The word many shows up four times in Psalm 3. That's where he starts. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Or verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David is, is very realistic about his trouble. He sees the threats around. He's not blind. He doesn't say, God, they're not that serious. No, he's saying many thousands of people have surrounded me and want to kill me. Eyes wide open to a dangerous world. And yet he has calm and peace. Because four times the, the word many shows up, but six times... The name Yahweh, Lord, shows up. It's the first word of the prayer. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? It's where he goes in verses 3 and 4. You, Lord, you're a shield about me. My glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord. It's where he ends in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? It's front and center in verses 3 and 4. That's, that's the key moment where, where David leaves his trouble and enters into the center of what his prayer life is, his God. But you, O oh Lord, you're a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. Remember 2 Samuel 15, David leaves Jerusalem crying, head covered down, and, God, and, and David says in his prayer, you're, you lifted my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, he answered me from his holy hill. And that's what you need to pray is God. And I know that sounds ridiculous and obvious. And yet I think we have a tendency to make our troubles and our fears the center of our prayer life. Right? It's the only thing we pray about. It's the thing we focus on in our prayers. And listen, tr our trouble, it starts our prayer. We won't pray without trouble. And yet, 
The center of your prayer life is not your troubles. To unpack what I mean by that, Eugene Peterson in his book, Answering God, which if you want a book to read on prayer, that's the book to read. It's short and it's really good. But he has a story in there where a woman came to visit him as a pastor and, and she had all sorts of trouble, all sorts of, uh, her life was a mess, it was a disaster. She was unpacking it to Eugene when he just stopped her and he said, do you ever pray? She said, no, never. And she got a smile on her face and looked at Eugene and said, but I, I do sometimes wish upwards. And I think that's a really good Frankly, just my own Christian history, that's how I learned to pray, was to wish upwards. Hey, Tim, what do you want God to do? And ask him to do it. But that makes me and my feelings and my troubles the center of my prayer life. And you won't pray very long like that. That's not the center of your prayer. God has to be the center of your prayer. Remember, that, that's why I spent so much time last week unpacking Psalm 1, that your, your, life, your prayer life starts with your meditation on God's word, that you're not crying out in prayer, hoping there's someone there to listen to you. And hear you, you're answering to a God who's already spoken to you. He's revealed himself to you. He's said things. He's done things. He's met people. And you're praying to that personal God. And David, all the psalmists, they knew God. And that's where their prayers were centered. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts this, the way the psalmists would pray. They're different often than how you and I pray. The psalmists, they took the trouble to find out what was revealed. To observe closely. To understand responsibly, to use their heads, and then to respond, to answer. Now let me illustrate that through three, Psalm 3, what, what, what David does here to center his life in the midst of his troubles. At first, he said, right, verse 3, he says, you, O Lord, you're a shield about me. Why a shield? Right, did David have an obsession with shields? Did he have a shield collection growing up as a kid? Why, go, why, why say you're a shield? It's because David knew his Bible. In Genesis 15, Abraham had doubts, he had fears, he wasn't sure that God was actually going to show up and do what he said he would do for Abraham. And so Abraham, in the midst of his doubts, in the midst of his sadness, in the midst of his questions, God shows up and the first thing God says to Abraham in Genesis 15 is, I am your shield and your reward is very great. David there, sitting in the midst of his own trouble, his own fears, grabbed on to a promise, grabbed on to who God is, this is his shield and he held on for dear life. And the next, David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. Why holy hill? Why go there? It's because the holy hill is where the temple was, where you went and you offered sacrifices. And David knew if you offered your sacrifice to the Lord, he would come and he would hear your prayer and listen to you. And it's not just that. Remember Psalm 2 last week. When God responds to this world that hates him and is rebelling against him, what does God say in, in Psalm 2? As for me, as for God, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. David was that king God had put on that holy hill. And even though enemies had gathered around David, God had made a promise to the kings of Israel to be their shield, to be their defense. And David is grabbing onto that promise and holding on for dear life. God, you're my shield. I'm crying to you from that hill. And he grabs and he holds. He meditates on the word of God. And that's his hope. That the key to a beautiful prayer life for you is not technique. It's not learning the right words. It's not saying mantras. It's not meditative skills. It is knowing God. That do not miss this. Your prayer life will only go as far as your knowledge of God. After all, prayer is a conversation. 
And you can have the richest, best conversations with people you know the most. Right? You can go into areas that you can talk about. That there's, there's shared experience. There's history. There's knowledge. You have your best conversations with people you love and know the most. And the same will be true of God. If you don't know him, you don't have promises to grab onto. If you don't know what he's done, what he said, where he's been, where he's going, you can't grab onto those threads and hold on to them when there's nothing else to hold on to. But David knew God as his shield. He knew the promises God had made him. And when the time where everything else was stripped away and it was just David and his God, he had all kinds of ropes to grab onto. So let's ask ourselves in our prayer lives, are we, are we wishing upwards? Are we praying to a known God, a God we know who has made promises to you in his word, who has spoken to you in his word? Are you wishing or are you praying? So tr- trouble, it, it, it should start your prayer life. If you don't think you're in trouble, you won't pray. What you need to pray is God, his promises, his word spoken over you. And, and finally, third, what does what prayer offer us? Now, I used to think prayer's great offer was, was resolution. Right? You pray and God says, yes, no, maybe, or later. Right? And the key to prayer is that. And yet Psalm 3 is very, very different. And throughout the Psalms, Prayer is very different. The verses 1 and 2, David starts with his trouble. That's where his prayer life starts. In verses 3 and 4, he centers his prayer life around the God he knows who has revealed himself to David. But nothing changes about his life. And so we might, maybe we expect Psalm, or verse 5 in Psalm 3 to be, and God showed up and destroyed my enemies and it was all good. Everything worked out in the end. But that's not what happens. And which is for the better, I think, for us. Psalms, uh, verse three, or Psalm 3, verses 5 and 6, I think is one of the greatest promises prayer makes to us. Here, listen to verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. You will not find two more different verses back to back than, than these two. David lays down and he sleeps. And he wakes up and the thousands of enemies are still all around him. That God offers him rest in the midst of his trouble, not resolution from his trouble. That's a great offer of prayer to you, is rest, not resolution. Not that you won't get resolution, but that's not what prayer offers you. First and foremost, it's not the great offer of prayer. With the NFL season starting up again this year, I begin to... Start to get ready for it. And one of the, the, the stories that has captured my attention, maybe it's captured yours, is, is Kansas City's chief safety, um, uh, Eric Berry. Last year, towards the end of the season, he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. He missed the last five games of the year fighting for, fighting for his life, fighting cancer. And amazingly, he's already back on the field playing. Like, he defeated cancer. He's back playing in the NFL. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing story. But I was listening to an interview he gave last week when he was unpacking just his last year um, this last few months of battling cancer, here's something he said that just stood out to me. He said, really, when you look at it, you're not battling the chemo, you're battling yourself the whole time. It was me versus me. There were many times where I didn't know if I would wake up tomorrow. I would just be up scared to go to sleep. And that's David in Psalm 3. He lays his head down, closes his eyes, and he knows thousands of people have surrounded him wanting to kill him. Not sure he's going to wake up. And yet the Lord sustained him. That's the great offer of prayer. 
And that's better than resolution, isn't it? Because it means you don't have to wait for your situation to get better or even to know what's going to happen. And whatever your trouble is, you don't have to know because that's not the offer of prayer. The offer of prayer is rest in the midst of that trouble. Rest. Though many thousands of people have set themselves against you all around. It's an amazing offer. But I don't, I don't want us to misunderstand this. That growing up as a, as a guy, for some reason, I just had a hard time reading the Psalms. I always assumed they were written by, by just men who kind of leaned on feathered pillows while people fanned them and brought them chocolates in between naps. They just, they're, you know, soft people and they weren't very hardened people. And they just, I couldn't relate to them. And yet the reality is the Psalms were written, especially David, by, by warriors. I mean, David is in the middle of a civil war and he sits down to write a poem of prayer to God. Right, this isn't by quiet streams of waters. This is with people who have swords and want to kill you. That is who David is praying in the midst of. David is a warrior. And that's even why when David says, oh Lord, you're my shield, a shield assumes someone's going to be coming at you with a sword or a bow and arrow. They're trying to kill you, so you need a shield. A shield assumes trouble. And then, of course, we get to verse 7, where David says, God, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. The Psalms are not nice. They're messy. There are people, forces in this world, who, who want to kill you and ruin your life. That's not just true of David and the armies facing him. I'm saying there are people, there are forces in this world who want nothing but your ruin. And that's why the Psalms talk about enemies a lot. And they get messy. The Eugene Peterson unpacks this reality of the Psalms like this. Given the mess things are, are in, right, we're all in trouble. It will not be surprising that some unpleasant matters have to be spoken in the language of our sin-conditioned humanity. For the language of prayer is most emphatically human language. It is not angel talk. I love that. And we'll unpack more of the hard language um, of the Psalms later in the series. But understand right now in this moment, what's important for us to hear from Psalm 3 is that God invites you to bring everything that you feel into prayer before him. Right? He's not asking you to put a mask on, look nice, put a little bow on a gift and hand it up to God. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is bringing before God what is in you, not what you want to be in you. Not what he wants for God to see in you. What's there, bring it to him. If you're angry, be angry. If you're sad, be sad. If you're, if you're weak, be weak. If you're broken, be broken. Don't come before God with a mask. The Psalms strip us of that notion. And that's my prayer for this church, honestly. Is that this space on a Sunday morning, our community groups, wherever we meet during the week, that we would be a people who have no pretensions. Who need no mask, who have no facade, who just are. That we as a church, we would not be Facebook. We would be the Psalms. And whatever you bring on a Sunday morning is, is who you are. You don't have to be a certain way to enter in. Because that's the reality of the Psalms, is they start where you are, and where you are is trouble, is helpless. And you may look less helpless than other people, but it doesn't matter. You are still in trouble. But the Psalms are good news for that. Because the Psalms have one continual movement from beginning to end. In the Psalms, the cry for help always becomes the shout of the saved. It's the movement of the whole Psalter itself, right? Psalm 3, the first Psalm, is lots of trouble, right? Oh Lord, my, 
My foes are all around. I'm in trouble. Help me, God. In Psalm 150, the end of the Psalter ends in exuberant praise. It ends like this. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's how the Psalter ends. From trouble, a cry for help to a shout of the saved. And that's how Psalm 3 starts. It's from fear. A cry for help. It ends in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You're blessing me on your people. A shout of the saved. It's the movement of the Psalter. It's the movement of the Psalms. That you come in trouble and you find salvation. And there are a few Psalms where it doesn't end like that. And we'll get to those Psalms as well where it ends in sadness and hard heartache. But the tendency of the Psalms is help from help to salvation. Which raises a question for us. How do we know salvation actually does come? How can we lay down and go to sleep and know God will sustain us and wake us again? And I would say to do what David did. Cry aloud to the holy hill. To his holy hill. But you and I have a very different holy hill to, climb out, to cry out to than, God, than David had. Or that David cries out to the holy hill on which the temple sat. Where you brought your sacrifice to God and God answered. Our hill is very different. It's Golgotha where we don't bring the sacrifice. God brings the sacrifice for us. His own son, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you're reminded, hey, you're in far more trouble than you ever feared. Because it's not just that the trouble you're aware of is a problem. It's that your life led to the death of God's son. You're in far more trouble than you ever feared. And yet, and yet it was God who brought the sacrifice. You're far more loved than you ever could hope. So cry aloud to his holy hill. Because Jesus laid down his own life, went to rest in the midst of his enemies, gave up his spirit, and the Lord sustained him, not just through sleep, but through death itself, and raised him to life. So that you and I could sing for all our days, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's how the Bible ends in Revelation. Revelation 7 and 19 God's people singing out, salvation belongs to the Lord. People of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's the song on their lips. Every person who came to God with needing help and helpless and in trouble sings out, salvation belongs to the Lord. That if you're in Christ, that's the story of your life. That what starts with us is cries for help will be for us, become forever. Shouts of the saved. Let's pray. God, thank you that we get to listen in on a prayer. I thank you for you're a God that doesn't require us to look a certain way, to feel certain things, to say certain things, to enter into your presence. But we can come into your presence because of what happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. We don't have to go to a temple. We go to a cross. And it's there we're reminded God, we're in trouble. We are sinners in need of your grace. And yet we also see in that you have brought your son to lavish grace upon us. So that we now sing, not because we're not in trouble, not because our enemies aren't still around, not because trouble won't exist all our days, but we can sing because salvation belongs to the Lord. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in you And though we may be in trouble and in trouble all the time, we can pray to you who hears. So hear us now. We ask these things and approach you in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.